Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we are um, sitting with another guest here. Mike's on the show. I'm here and we have Michael on board. Uh, Michael, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, Max. Thanks for having me, Mike. You know, you have my same name, but we'll let it slide for today. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> nice. So are you um, going Mike? by Mike or Michael? Yeah, I'll go by Michael so we don't confuse the, the listeners. Well, okay. <laughs> let's go with that. I mean, your voices are not too similar. So I think like the longer we listen, the better uh, we're going to differentiate. Um, of course, the name are similar. But uh, Michael, I mean, it's a pleasure, pleasure having you on. Um, you kind of you've done similar things, like very, very different things in the past, which are, of course, somehow interconnected, but also somehow quite diverse, which is super cool. Um, and you've just recent, recently kind of launched a book, uh, Unlocking Unicorns, which we're definitely going to talk about. And of course, there are many other things that we want to dig a bit into. Um, I've been uh, kind of reading, uh, not the whole book yet, but like digging into it and uh, been really liking it so far. So uh, uh, maybe you can give kind of the, the listeners a bit of kind of background on what has led you to kind of actually work in entrepreneurship and like be interested in the tech ecosystem and the startup ecosystem and, and just give people a bit of background on who you are and what have you done in the past? Yeah, I feel like to understand who I am, you actually have to start back when I was a child and my grandmother was tiptoeing in my bedroom. And she would do this maybe three or four times a week, uh, you know, while I'm sleeping at you know midnight or 1am because I was a good child and I'd sleep early. She would tiptoe into my bedroom and, and take my teddy bears. Uh, I was the youngest of three siblings, and both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. So when I was growing up, it was actually my grandmother who raised me for a good portion of my early years. Uh, and every December, given that she was also from Ghana, she would want to flee from Seattle, Washington, which is where I was from because it was too cold. And she would flee back home to Ghana, right, where it actually was warm and there was like sunshine and beaches. Uh, but before fleeing, she would tiptoe in my bedroom, take my teddy bears, and stuff them in her suitcase. And she did this with me and my brother and my sister. Uh, and it was kind of my first uh, introduction to entrepreneurship and philanthropy. The reason being that she would take all these teddy bears and give them to kids in hospitals and orphanages and schools as their Christmas presents. Uh, because a lot of these kids didn't get any Christmas presents. So even though they're you know, my old teddy bears that I never played with anymore, she would take them and use them as, as these kind of great gifts and great ways of re-gifting. So obviously, you know, I was happy with that for a little bit. But once I started to find out that my favorite teddy bears were disappearing, I got kind of <laughs> upset as any, you know, three, four or five, six-year-old would. But um, when I got into middle school uh, in sixth grade, my grandmother actually passed away. And my family wanted to do something to honor her memory. So we decided when we went to her funeral that we put up posters around our high school and middle school and ask people to donate teddy bears. You know, in her memory, we we're going to do one last, you know, donation drive to some hospitals and some schools and some orphanages. And those posters, I think we got three or 4,000 teddy bears donated. <laughs> so we ended up stuffing, I think, 15 suitcases. We didn't plan for it. So we just paid like the overweight baggage fee, which at the time, I think it was like $100 extra per bag. Uh, and we took them all to Ghana and then went to all of my grandmother's kind of places that she would go. Um, to donate these teddy bears. At the end of this trip, it was about a week and a half long. We thought this is actually a really interesting project and a great way to make her memory live on for longer than just this one time. So that was my introduction into entrepreneurship. Um, we would do that every single year. And we actually made it into a nonprofit organization called Hugs for Ghana. And now it's just called Hugs for Blank, where that blank is any, any country that we do and operate in. And we actually operate in six countries, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, Sierra Leone, um, Tanzania, and the United States. So that was my first introduction to entrepreneurship in kind of the informal sense. And it actually was through nonprofit work and philanthropy, more so than traditionally what people would do, which is, you know, selling their school lunch, which I also did, or making apps for the app store and selling them, which, you know, I did at one point in high school. Uh, but that was my like, initial introduction. Um, and can so, I ask one? Yeah. Can I ask one question to that? Actually, before we kind of yeah. dig deeper into your story, um, yeah. like, what have you thought about kind of the the experience itself back then, right? Because of course, like this whole topic of entrepreneurship and 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 like philanthropy overall was maybe something that you didn't know as a term. So, how did you kind of w what did the experience give to you? Kind of seeing 
like actually donating things and and like seeing the kind of potential happiness in in the people uh, say accepting the, the little gifts yeah i'll say two things i'll say first um we were super intentional in building the organization to make everything in person meaning we weren't just like collecting teddy bears and shipping it to ghana or shipping them to sierra leone but we were physically flying there to hand deliver these supplies um that was the way my grandmother did it and i think it's just it's so different when you see a kid face to face and you hand them a teddy bear and they literally smile or their parents would cry and be like you know this thing that costs five dollars they wouldn't have even been able to buy for their child who's sick with malaria right or sick with dengue fever or whatever it might be uh, and so that was i think really important uh, and in the business sense it would be like how do you keep close to your customers and actually get to see them and engage with them right in a real human sense uh, and philanthropy is about humans right and so that was what you know that's the, that's the first thing i really noticed and when we when we started expanding to get you know not not just my family involved in the trips but also you know other high school students or middle school students in washington state uh, that was what we did as well. We made all of them fly physically to Ghana. It was some of their families and their parents' first times to Africa, almost all the students' first times to Africa. And they were going to Ghana and hand-delivering supplies. Uh, we called it almost like volunteerism, where there's a there's a part tourism, like part like diplomacy trip, part philanthropy. But even to this day, you know, almost a decade after one of our first trips, the friends that I talked to still are like, that was like one of my most formative experiences going to Ghana, going to Africa. Because it changed their viewpoint from just being what you see on the television of, you know, starving children to like, well, these are actually people, right? They're just like me and my family, just born in different circumstances. So that's the first point to your question. I think the second point to your question on entrepreneurship, I mean, every business, every great business solves a problem. I think the same can be said about every great nonprofit. Solves a problem that maybe isn't naturally solved by the ecosystem um, or the government structures or whatever you know, systemic problems are existing in a, in a region. Uh, and philanthropy is one solution to that problem. It's not the only solution, and it probably shouldn't be the only solution, but it's one of them. Uh, so in running Hugs for Ghana, it really taught me that like, to make a great business, you have to find a problem that's affected by billions of people and solve it in such a way that people are willing to pay you for the solution. In this case, the payment was you know, tax-deductible donations, really cool trips, you know, great smiles and memories and photos. Uh, but beyond that, it really was a, a fascinating kind of foray into what business was and what business could be, you know, in the future. Super interesting. Um, thanks for sharing, right? I mean, um, of course, this is kind of a, an interesting touch uh, on, on the personal side with kind of your grandma and giving something back to her um, in, in retrospect, but also kind of giving you a kind of indirect kickstart into the world of entrepreneurship and, and philanthropy. Um, you then kind of continue to kind of make your first experiences, of course, besides studying at Harvard, where a lot of great entrepreneurs come from, but um, like you, you made your experience into the VC world. And um, I think you were kind of still working in the VC world. How did you kind of decide to, to go that pathway then? And what are you doing yeah. today? Maybe? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. So I, I, when I first went to Harvard, I was supposed to study neurobiology and like neuroscience and be a doctor. Uh, both my siblings studied medicine and are both you know, doctors themselves. Uh, I remember looking at my grades at the end of my freshman year, and it was on a four-point scale, where like a four is an A, you know, a three is like a B, a two is a C. I think I had a 2.8 or a 2.9 at the end of my freshman year. And I, I didn't even know it went below three. Because <laughs> in high school, I was a good student. And in college, it was not, I was not, you know, it was just it was hard to go from a public school to Harvard, which is such a hard educational institution. Um, so I looked at my transcript. And I found the one class where I like didn't do like poorly and it was a philosophy class. So I was like, all right, I'm probably good at this philosophy stuff. So I switched my major to philosophy and I got a minor in computer science because I had taught myself how to code in high school and taken a few classes about that same subject. That was what I studied. Um, during my sophomore year, I emailed a bunch of different uh, professor or professors and professionals and entrepreneurs and asked them like, I'm studying philosophy. What do you think I should do with my degree? And almost all of them said, you should probably go and be an investor or be a venture capitalist. And now that I'm you know, working at M12, Microsoft's venture capital fund, and I'm also an angel investor on the side, in retrospect, it seems like the perfect fit because philosophy is all about reading really old arguments or papers and trying to create your own view of the world, your own philosophy, I mean, for lack of a better term, <laughs> for what people should do and how they should live. 
Venture capital, I think, is almost the exact same way. You build out a philosophy or an investment thesis, and you're physically throwing money at ideas that you think should change the world in the way that you want the world to change. So in some sense, philosophy, I would say, is venture capital applied. Where in philosophy, you're writing papers and publishing papers to try and make an impact or publishing books. In venture capital, you're using a billion dollars to try and make the same exact impact. So it seems like almost a natural uh, you know, transaction <laughs> to go from philosophy to venture capital. And I think a lot of philosophy majors probably would be great venture capitalists as well, even though it isn't the logical uh, next step, uh, you know, I would say. But that was yeah, kind of the common the commonality between VCs and philosophers is that both really like to talk a lot. So yeah. I, I definitely <laughs> not just just teasing, but no, I, I I've actually like I've never heard the connection between philosophy and VC before, but I I think it's a very it makes sense to me, right? Because in as you said, both are very much about your own view of the world, and then also. If you do it right, at least, both at its core have some kind of ground logic. And mm -hmm. I think what many people who don't understand philosophy degrees, and you might correct me because I didn't study it, but the, at the core of philosophy, like logic is one of the most important things you learn, right? And how to properly structure an argument and how to follow a thesis and actually ensure that it's valid or not. And doing that as a VC is doing it in the real world, right? And doing it as, as a philosopher is maybe a bit more just dealing with ideas. And we see can just see their ideas being translated into something, either into code, right? Or into something at least that affects the real world. A bit more directly. That's exactly it. And I would say the additional thing that you didn't mention is at least a big part of how I study philosophy. And I don't know if it's, it's the same at every school or different, but was also reading super old texts, maybe like Plato's Republic, And my paper would be, you know, in, in part three of the Euthyphro, uh, which was written by Plato, find a flaw in his argument and write a 50-page paper about it, right? This is Plato. <laughs> like, how am I going to find a flaw in the, like, the guy who made philosophy and that you're supposed to? And so even in venture capital, like every entrepreneur is so convinced that their idea is right. And it's going to show you the super rosy picture of the future that they're hoping to build or the problem that they're hoping to solve. And you have to be able to critically examine it. Uh, in a memo or in just like a discussion to understand if it's actually going to hold up to the stress of of hard logic. What are, I mean, yeah. uh, oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I, I just wanted to use that to, to piggyback and ask, you said you're also an angel investor. So like, what is your own investment thesis? So how do you see investing? What's your view on, on the world in that sense? Yeah, I, I think I developed my investment thesis during my sophomore year of college. I had finished my first internship at Twitter and my mom essentially said to me, we can't pay tuition for you anymore because we ran out of money. <laughs> Long story short, right? They had budgeted for, you know, three siblings, but my siblings had gone to college uh, and then med school. So we kind of ran out. So my mom said to me, you know, if you want to pay for college, you have to take out loans or figure out a way to pay for it yourself. So I ended up making a business. It was a marketing consulting company. We'd go to restaurants in Harvard Square and essentially sell them services for marketing to get more students in the door. We ended up charging about $5,000 a semester for each client that we had, which was pretty good because we knew nothing. We didn't know what we were doing and somehow they paid us. Uh, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was making this business because I was you know, a low-income student wanting to pay for college. And all of the employees I hired, there were about 20 by the time I was a senior, were also low-income students. So I think that business has the potential to have a double bottom line or a triple bottom line. We're like, yes, you're helping your shareholders. Yes, you're making a profit, but you should also be doing something to also change the world for the better, uh, right? In whatever way that you're doing that. Uh, and so all of the companies I invest in as an angel investor uh, fall into that category. So there's one company called Zet. Um, they're essentially trying to break down paywalls with a subscription service. So you'd pay $10 a month to get access to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, great business model, great idea. It's essentially Netflix for news. Mm -hmm. But the triple bottom line aspect, the social good aspect is, well, how do you actually make news more accessible to everyone so that money isn't a barrier to get good information, right? So that's an example of one really cool company that I liked. Um, and so that, that to me is really important. There's another company called PayHippo that does loans in Nigeria to small and medium businesses, uh, small, medium-sized businesses. And of course, like they're giving loans to people who otherwise wouldn't have loans at all 
for some variety of reasons. Maybe they don't have a credit score. Maybe they don't have access to a bank or access to capital or the current banks are kind of predatory and want them to have some like huge collateral, maybe even their own personal property as collateral. So Payhippo is coming in and giving them loans in a way that they never would be able to get it to build businesses for new groups, new areas, new institutions. So for me, that's super important. You know, yeah, you can make a bunch of money and that's great, but there's a lot of ways to make money. If you're not making money and also making an impact, then I probably won't invest. One, one, one follow-up question to that, because it's very interesting, right? I mean, the, the triple bottom line, um, kind of profit plan on people, or like, I think that's how it's called, right? Um, it's, it's, it's in some form for a lot of company companies, I think it's a very abstract way of kind of, or it's, it's a great recommendation of kind of thinking about a new way of, of, of measuring the success and impact of a company on the other side. You also hear that a lot of companies are struggling to kind of quantify it and make it a, an actual theme to evaluate the business kind of what's the framework that you use and you kind of look at different startups and you want to kind of see if they are matching your kind of the triple, the triple piece at the end, what's the framework that you use to actually evaluate whether, um, whether a company on a, on a quantifiable basis kind of matches your, 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 your mission of kind of investing in companies that, that have more than just kind of a, a great kind of revenue growth pipeline in the future. I mean, I think the best example is something like Tom's shoes. Um, Tom shoes, they're a company where every time they sell a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes. Maybe it's, I think it's buy one, give one. They may have changed it to like buy two, give one or something like that, just because pandemic and it's hard to make money. Um, but nonetheless, that that's their model where every sale is explicitly tied in a really easily quantifiable way to something that's being given. Zet, which I just used as an example for the paywall company, it's a bit more difficult, right? Because they can't really buy a membership or a subscription and give a subscription. You know, or if they could, it'd be hard to figure out who to give it to. Um, so what Yehung actually ended up doing is she's requiring all of her board members to donate a certain portion um, of their Zet stock to charity. And they get to choose, right? Like if you own you know, 5% of Zet, you have to donate 1% of your stake, so 0.05% to some charity of your choice. But she's building it in from the start to her company that giving back philanthropy, having that triple bottom line, even if you as a board member get to choose, is built into the actual infrastructure and kind of stitching of the company, which, you know, when you're super small and only worth maybe $10 million, it isn't a huge impact. But if it scales to be a unicorn company, then the impact, you know, also continues to scale. Interesting. That's an interesting concept. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I kind of like that, like to think about how can you maximize that every sale that a company does kind of has like some impact on, on the bottom line that makes it very easy to kind of understand and conceptualize also in kind of building the revenue model and building the sales model. Um, very interesting. Uh, thank, thanks for sharing that. Um, I mean, one other thing that I think we wanted to kind of touch upon, which definitely um, helps to kind of get a better understanding of also, I think, who you are and and, and also kind of how much you relate to uh, also creating content is, is kind of the new setter that you've built, which was kind of the the emerging factor to kind of also launch a book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of billion dollar startup ideas and kind of what you have done there? Um, maybe as like even a helpful tool probably to to invest in great companies, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Uh, so I, after graduating from college, I graduated in 2019 and went home because I wanted to live at home for like maybe six months and then buy a house. Uh, eventually the pandemic started, so that <laughs> crushed all of my house buying plans. <laughs> but while living at home, I had a lot of, I guess, free time. I would go to work at Microsoft, maybe like nine to five, but I was working as a product manager at the time and it wasn't actually super difficult. Um, so I was really working like 10 to three, 10 to four. And I kind of felt my creativity dying a little bit, right? I mean, in college, I was doing a consulting company. I was taking six classes a semester. I was learning about philosophy and ethics and sociology and anthropology. And then I went to work and I was literally just like doing what my manager told me to do, right? Like it was like so boring. I wanted to find some way to like reclaim my creativity again. And that's how I started doing billion dollar startup ideas. Um, my thought is let me find one new problem every single day and propose like the most wacky solution to it and find out a way that this wacky solution or wacky problem could be a billion dollar startup of some sort. Uh, and that was how it started. Uh, for the first six months, I think there was a total of 500 people who ever looked at the blog or the website. And then I posted on Hacker News and overnight got a thousand subscribers to my newsletter. Um, and so it, it kind of exploded from there. And now I get more views 
per day than I got in my first, you know, seven months of running the whole entire newsletter, um, which is you know pretty fun growth. And I also have a TikTok page now too, where people can watch videos of me talking about each idea, <laughs> nice. uh, which is which is fun. Yeah. Um, we, but, you need to give some tips for Mike and myself. We kind of wanted to go that route, but we haven't done yet. But maybe that's for later. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to, if you want a true TikTok influencer, my brother I think has three hundred fifty thousand followers on TikTok. So he's the true guy to give you <laughs> TikTok tips. What does I he do? Is it, is it related to his like being a doctor or what was yeah. his? Yeah, yeah. His okay. his TikTok is all about health equity. So he looks at kind of like you know if you look at any healthcare textbook. You know, it's mostly mm -hmm. just, you know, white models and so on in, in the textbooks. And so mm -hmm. his TikTok explores, like, what are the downstream effects of that in actual practice of medicine? Got it. Shout yeah. out to Michael's brother at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, his name's Joel. Joel Bravel, you can go follow him. I mean, he's he's much more social media savvy than I am. I'm just a, <laughs> a popper. I just write and philosophize and invest. <laughs> um, but to that point, the blog, you know, started posting every single day quickly got a, a big following and I was using Squarespace for my blog. And what's nice about Squarespace is you can see where people are reading from. And I noticed that only about 30% of my readership was coming from the U S and Canada. The other 70% was coming from India, Africa, and Asia. And after about a year of doing the blog project, I realized like, I kind of want to do something that is more real and kind of like solid <laughs> than like blogging on the internet. You know, like I wanted to have like a physical takeaway. And one of my readers had reached out to me because uh, I do kind of innovation consulting where my readers can sign up for time for 15 minutes to chat with me about any idea that they have and want feedback on. Uh, and he was getting feedback about how to publicize his book, which he had just published at the age of 23. And my first question to him was, how are you publishing a book at the age of 23? And he connected me to his publisher and all of his resources. And that was how I got started on the journey. So Unlocking Unicorns uh, is, is a book about 10 startup stories from founders in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. The main idea behind the book is when you think of startup founders, you mostly think of like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, um, you know, Warren Buffett, like that, that's the kind of the, the gold standard of success. All great entrepreneurs, but mostly they're in the global West, meaning they're in the US, Europe, or Canada. And I, I was convinced that I think the next half century of innovation is going to happen from out of the US, right? Just in India, you know, there's almost over a billion people. And of those billion people, about 700 million are on the internet. Just in Africa, there's over a billion people. And in the last two months in Africa, there are more people on the internet than in the US total, right? There's more than 300 million internet users in Africa, and there's less than 300 million people in the US. So if you're just thinking of like where you should be investing, just pure numbers wise to make the highest return. Once the unit economics start to make a bit more sense, you have to be investing in what, you know, big corporations would call the next billion users. So today, this book project was to understand what are these next billion users doing right now? How are companies serving them? And what are the lessons that you need to know to truly expand your business to an Africa, Asia, Middle East, Southeast Asia, whatever it might be. Can you tell us a bit about kind of the stories about the people that kind of also the people that you've had on in the book? Um, I mean, I've, I've already read a few of them um, and kind of, can you give us a bit of hint of like who these people are um, and, and kind of try to summarize kind of what you, what you kind of took away from kind of interviewing them in, in some sense? Yeah. So essentially in interviewing them both directly and indirectly, I did two process of interviews. So the first process was if I could actually get them on the phone and, on a Zoom call or a Teams call or a phone call like this, I would do that and try to learn as much as possible. The second form of interviewing is what I call secondary interviews, which is where you consume so much content about the individual that you actually understand more about them through not actually talking to them directly, but you understand a bunch about them just by listening to their stories from a bunch of different sources. So I ended up talking directly with people like Jack Ma, Robin Lee, so the founders of Alibaba and Baidu, and indirectly to a bunch of other people um, like Kiran Mazamunashar, she made a company called Biocon in India. Um, there's another uh, company called Kareem, founded by a guy named Mudasir, who used to work at McKinsey and then dropped out of his McKinsey job and made this kind of Uber for the Middle East. Um, in learning all the stories, I tried to have a really clear framework for how do you build a startup in one of these regions. And I think it applies beyond these regions as well. Uh, but the main learning was 
every startup starts with an exploration phase where you're exploring a bunch of different ideas that potentially could work or not work. You're refining down eventually to what you think is going to be your core idea and you're exploiting uh, to essentially take what you found as a key learning and scale it super, super quickly. So I'll use the example of Ritesh Agarwal who made Oyo. Uh, he actually was a Kairos fellow. So that's how Max, me, you know, we know each other. Kairos now Sigma squared. Uh, but Ritesh is the youngest billionaire in India. Uh, you know, at the age of like 28, he is now. He's you know one of the most valuable people. And Donald Trump, in one of his speeches when he went to India, chatted about Ritesh or like mentioned Ritesh in the speech. So if Donald Trump knows you, yeah, at some level you're doing something right, <laughs> whether you like him or not. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and so his whole model was, you know, when he first started making his business, he explored a bunch of different things. He was a Thiel fellow, like came to the U.S., expanded his eyes to see that in Silicon Valley, no one's trying to make the best company in Silicon Valley. They're trying to make the best company in the world. And so he went back to India with that same mentality and explored a bunch of different options and opportunities. I think he spent about 180 days or 100 days just couch surfing and crowd, like going from place to place, living in different places and realized that like, None of the standards of where he was living were consistent. Some places were great. Some places absolutely sucked. And he thought, you know, there's a way that I could refine this industry to be super, super, super great. And his key finding was that, you know, people focus on, you know, having 100 room or 200 room hotels, but the 10 to 20 room hotels or 30 room hotels are all neglected. Hmm. And so what can you do to essentially roll up these businesses, improve the quality and make it into a business. And that's oil rooms. They essentially are a licensing arm for great hotels that are mom and pop uh, to make them higher quality and, and make a bunch of money. And in that way, they've scaled faster than Marriott and faster than almost every other hotel chain. And in just a decade are like almost twice the size of some of the biggest hotel chains in the world. Insane. I didn't know that. Crazy. When, I think that's like one of the later chapters, no? Yeah, I think that's, I think I just gave you a tip in a chapter seven or chapter eight. <laughs> you spoiled, you spoiled my, my reading, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I only gave you one of the many lessons. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, thanks for sharing. Um, I mean, like, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned a couple of hints on like patterns on what you've learned um, from, from kind of also interviewing them. And I, I think, yeah, as you said, mentioned, right. One of them is that it's not about kind of global building global companies but actually companies uh, or local companies but building actually global companies that have a large impact whether it's from india or other countries and yeah. then kind of the other pinpoint that you mentioned is that especially that founder kind of he he went he actually took on a journey on himself kind of crowd surfing through different locations and then seeing the problem um, which are potentially two patterns already like what are other patterns that you've seen interviewing such a diverse set of people um, from different backgrounds and, and, and of course, different continents in that sense. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of these people like weren't necessarily entrepreneurs to begin with. And their first idea that they hit on was not, wasn't necessarily the successful one. So I'll use Robin Lee from Baidu, essentially like the Google of China um, as an example. Um, Robin actually came to the U S and was getting his PhD here before he dropped out of his PhD program to go, uh, do search engineering and search results, uh, in China. Uh, I think his big kind of finding was that, uh, you know, if you actually do index-based searching, you get better results. And he was actually the first to patent that before Larry Page and Sergey Brin of Google, <laughs> which I thought was pretty interesting. He also knew, you know, the early team at, at Yahoo and the early team at, at Google uh, because they all were kind of the same era. Uh, and so it's funny that, you know, innovations tend to happen simultaneously and that a lot of these people tend to cross paths, even if only temporarily. Um, Jack Ma also had a really interesting story. Um, in the book, I talk about how failure isn't necessarily a determinant of success or failure in startups. Uh, in fact, failing more doesn't mean that you're going to have success. Failing more just means that you're failing. The true kind of step towards success is if you take a failure, what is the key learning from that failure? And Jack Ma is a great example of this. Every failure that he had, he used to expand his Guangxi, which in Chinese is another name for like your professional network. And that expansion of his professional network is what allowed him to actually build Alibaba, uh, especially in a region like China, where you need kind of government approval and kind of, you know, to be on the good side of the government in order to do things like that. Uh, and so his network was imperative to building the internet uh, in, in Asia, right, where they didn't really want kind of an open uh, and free kind of system in that same sense. Uh, so, so two interesting lessons, you know, the idea that 
you know, you have to fail often and, and always, but in a way that you're always learning. And also the you know second lesson that the first idea almost never is the right idea. You have to kind of pivot a few times, even if that means dropping your PhD to go make a startup. Nice, um, awesome. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing. Of course, that I, I love the fact that of course you you touched upon the failing part, which has been uh, a topic that has come up more and more also in our podcast in the past since we had different kind of tech founders on on board. Um, but of course, kind of converting it into um, of course the learning experience and then also building your professional network is something that I think is often overseen. You can fail, but if you don't have any learning, uh, good luck with that, right? So it's not gonna it's not gonna bring you very far. Um, I mean, one of the things, um, and I think, yeah, I've read that chapter, uh, and of course, that's super interesting also to me, since I've been in, in, in kind of Southern Africa for a while, is mm -hmm. you also interviewed um, uh, kind of different different founders from from the African region. Um, and of course, your background also, you talked about your grandma, right? So um, how does, how can you give people a bit of kind of, um, kind of an introduction to the African tech ecosystem? Because as you mentioned, like sometimes we are sitting in certain bubbles, whether it's in Europe or in, in, in North America, And we, we might sometimes oversee other amazing tech bubbles in, in a positive way that are actually doing great progress. Can you can you share us a bit more about kind of the African ecosystem? Yeah, the two companies that I read about in the book were Andela um, and Interswitch. Uh, I don't know if, you, if your listeners have heard of either of those companies, but essentially Interswitch is kind of like the banking system um, started in Nigeria and has expanded kind of everywhere now. Um, they actually got a big deal with Visa that put them over unicorn status. Uh, and Andela similarly is kind of a business based in Africa, but they're hoping to do um, software engineers for hire, right? So today, if you want to go hire a software engineer from out of the US or out of Canada or out of Europe, you mostly are going to India. But hours wise, it actually isn't that helpful to have um, Indian engineers because you still have to like either stay up super late or wake up super early to have overlap with them. Um, Andela's big bet is that working with engineers in Africa um, is actually closer to Eastern time, right? It's only a six hour time difference versus a nine or 10 hour time difference. And so you actually get more time to work with your engineers um, in Africa and, and, and of the same scale level than working with engineers in India. Um, but overall, um, as you're looking at, at Africa, it's one of the youngest continents uh, in the world, right? If you look at the average age of citizens in Africa, Uh, I think it's maybe 28, 27, uh, super, super young, right? And super fast growing population wise. Um, so this generation of Africans is also some of the most educated Africans in, in a generation. Um, and so the, the combination of education along with super young people who are hungry to change and also the fact now that information is much more equally distributed, right? Because of the internet, uh, I think is, is what leads and plants the seeds for what's going to be a pretty amazing next 50 years for the African continent, right? The fact that people not only can see like, well, this is how other countries, you know, adapted and modernized their middle class and, and upper class, but also the fact that people are young and willing to do it, it is going to be a huge, a huge boon. Uh, I think we've seen that. I mean, all throughout Nigeria, there's, there's been more startup funding. I think startup funding has almost doubled in the last five years, but still it's pretty uh, small and abysmal, right? If you look just at 2018, I think Denver, Colorado, you know, in the U.S., got about $1.5 billion in venture investment. In the same year, 2018, the whole continent of Africa got $1.5 billion in, in venture capital investment. Right, So there's, there's still huge disparities in terms of where dollars are going and, and how you can make dollars go you know, to a better place, to a place to affect more people. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm still super, super excited about the ecosystem. I also do think that Uh, venture deals in the US uh, and in Europe have just gotten pretty expensive, right? So if you're looking for where you can you place your dollar to have the highest return, uh, <laughs> there actually is an economic incentive to wanting to invest in regions that are underinvested, whether it's Africa or Southeast Asia, Latin America as well. Uh, and I think the book that I you know, wrote was trying to find a couple examples of, well, if you were to invest in these regions, would you actually get a good return? Like, would you be successful? Uh, and Della is a great example. Interest, which is a great example. And there's also a few other, you know, unicorns in Africa. One's called Flutterwave, um, which is started by the same guy who started Andela. Um, his nickname is E. Uh, he's just kind of like, <laughs> like a legend in the African like venture ecosystem. Uh, and, and there's a few others as well. But even today in Africa, there's, there's less than a dozen unicorn companies. 
uh, tech unicorns, um, but still, I think a lot of potential, a lot of people, uh, and even just a lot of of land, right, to to use for expansion and, and opportunities there. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is there like just to to close the topic off? Is there like a standard where you incorporate in Africa, like the Delaware C Corp in the US, or is it different country by country? That that would be very interesting because what I've seen is that most of the seed funds and also angel investors that I know, they usually don't even invest in anything other than Delaware C Corps. Mm -hmm. So are more and more African companies also incorporating in the US, which I'm seeing for other countries, but like, how does that work? Yeah, no, it's a great question on like the technicalities. Andela, for as an example, is incorporated in New York, <laughs> even though they operate out of Africa. And so at, when I found that out, I was like debating, is it like, should I even include this, this startup in the book? Like technically it's an American startup, but they do work in Africa. Uh, you know, I ultimately ended up in, including it because that's their primary use. I've made a few angel investments in Africa. Uh, almost all the companies I've invested in are Delaware C-Corps. Right. And so I think it is a good question. You could be incorporated somewhere else and yet still do work uh, in, in that region. To your other question of like, do they have like a, what you'd be describing is like a Pan-African um, standard for corporations. There, there's not that I know of a Pan-African corporation standard. Um, it's one of the problems I talk about in the book, specifically a chapter about Grab. I think it may be chapter nine or chapter 10, uh, but they're Uber for Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia, as you know, is like a bunch of islands, very fragmented, like many, many, many countries. And every time Grab wanted to expand to a new country, they had to, one, you know, incorporate, two, get a new language for the app because every every island has a different language. And then three, adapt to local customs and culture. Uh, and of course, you know, you think Uber is a simple business to run, but once you start running it in essentially a hundred different countries or however many different countries, uh, it becomes super, super difficult. Um, so at least in the African region, you know, English is still a primary language for a lot of these areas. So translation of the apps or of the of the services aren't too much of an issue. But I'm sure, Mike, to your point, this is why a lot of the African fintech or African unicorns are in the fintech space. Right. I, I haven't seen an Africa or an Uber for Africa yet or an Airbnb for Africa yet. I'm sure we will. Uh, but right now it's mostly been kind of like the payments infrastructure and the communications infrastructure, which is probably a bit easier to scale across the continent than a consumer-facing business. Yeah, yeah. I, I also have seen most of the African companies that I know of are actually in the fintech space, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah no, so true. Stripe acquired, um, what was the company that Stripe acquired? I, I totally forgot. I don't the remember the name, but I know who you're talking of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was a big acquisition too, right? Because it kind of validated that like you can build a fintech company in Africa and have it have it scale. I mean, let's both Google furiously to try and find it before the end of the podcast. Is <laughs> <laughs> it Paystack? Oh, go ahead, Mike. I think it's Paystack. Paystack, yes. Uh, from, Paystack, yeah, yes. From, from Nigeria, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that's um, the last thing I'll say on the African ecosystem before we move on. I think it applies to other ecosystems is that building local and giving equity to like even like African entrepreneurs or engineers, or whatever else. I think the best part about it is when an acquisition happens um, because, because of the Paystack acquisition, you know, now there's going to be a quote unquote Paystack mafia, you know, in the same way there was a PayPal mafia or people who have, have kind of made a few million off of, you know, this job realize that they don't need all of it to live and can now invest in other startups and other founders. And so it increases the risk tolerance of individuals rather than having to, you know, go work in Europe or the U.S. for the safety and stability to send money back to their family, which is kind of like what causes brain drain, right? So just having more liquid cash, uh, I think, is is also going to probably help a lot of these regions once we get more exits. Yeah, it's something we, like Max and I, actually talk about a lot. And mm -hmm. it's also something that we think is one of the main reasons why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley, right? It's where it started, all the capitalists there. You have so many people who are just now investing because they have the money and what they know is startups. And now other regions are slowly but surely just trying to reach that status, right? I mean, we talk a lot about the Berlin ecosystem and there you see it's currently going really well, but it could only go well because there were a couple of companies that went well first and then these people like some of the first employees started the new companies or started investing so yeah i i totally agree you need a very good angel system like people who write the first checks 
before mm-hmm. you can really empower a new reason to become a very good setup ecosystem. And then more cash will follow. So if you actually enable people to build businesses that have good unit economics, that scale well, that have revenue growth, then there will always be capital flowing that direction. But the the very first layer is just very difficult to do for them, right? For these institutions who have the money. So you need to create it somehow. Yeah, I think Paul Graham wrote a paper or an article called like how to build Silicon Valley or something along those lines. And he asked a lot of those questions. He's like, what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley? One of it is the density. Another is the flow of capital. And, and the third that I thought was really interesting is also the flow of talent. You know, the fact that you can leave Stripe and go work at Twitter and then leave Twitter six months later and go work at Facebook also like helps to build that ecosystem and like exchange ideas in a way that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Um, I'll leave you with an interesting question. Uh, I know we've been saying we'll jump from the Africa topic to other things, but I just find it so interesting. It was this finding that I found, I don't remember, I think it was maybe the Gates Foundation, which had found this, or um, one of the, the economic development organizations. But they found specifically in Kenya that of the dollars going into venture capital-backed startups, about 80% of the companies, it might actually have been 90%. Uh, a pretty high amount were going to startups founded by expats and only maybe 10 or 15% were going to startups founded by local individuals. I, I didn't have an answer for it in the chapter. or have a big developed opinion on it, but it did get me thinking, you know, it's great that there's all this investment going in, but there's also sort of the question of who is the investments, who are the investments going to? I think even in the U.S., I think only about 14% of startup funding goes to female founders. You know, 6% goes to black founders. Uh, about four or five percent goes to Latinx founders. So all totaled, less than twenty percent is going to, you know, what people bucket into diverse founders is the category that a lot of ESG funds will call it. And I think the same thing is starting to happen in other regions. So it's something that I'm, I'm cognizant of and thinking, you know, what what is the right quote unquote solution or answer? But you know, as you're building a Silicon Valley, you know, there's a question of who reaps the returns uh, and who are the actual angel investors? Are they all expats? Or are they actually? The local citizens of said country or nation or city. That yeah, was your, that was, I, oh, go, go ahead, Mike. Okay, so basically, the issue is it has to start somehow, right? And if there's no capital, but experts can experts can bring capital, and then also most of the quote unquote nerds who like worked in tech really early on were just like basement dwellers who like like to code. And these were predominantly male and predominantly white because, like, it's also very closely related to the whole like gaming industry, which, which is like almost the same demographic. Right? It's changing all of it, but um, the issue is once you have this established structure, it's it's very difficult to force it to be different, right? So you need to like at, at least, in my personal opinion is you need to expand access. And just ensure that all of these quote unquote diverse founders, you need to start really, really early, is my mm-hmm. opinion. You you can't start when everyone is like in the like 20s, 30s, etc., because then there's just a big gap between like coding ability or whatever. You need to start with things like girls who code or bringing diverse people into like software engineering or entrepreneurship or all of these things, because the earlier you start, the better you can actually achieve these accumulative skills and the the knowledge and all of it you need to actually attract not only capital but also like co-founders and then employees later so the earlier you start in my personal opinion the better yeah my hypothesis too is that lowering the risk associated with uh, and maybe it's impossible too i mean some things will always be risky some things will always not be risky but you know if if you're, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we're going into tech, that was a risky thing to do, right? The traditional thing was going to consulting and banking. I think the equivalent today is, you know, if you're going into crypto and making a crypto startup or even investing in that space, it's like a super risky thing to do. Granted, the returns are going to be huge in 10, 15, 20 years, but mostly the people who are able to take that risk, which demographically can skew one way or the other, uh, are the ones who are going to reap the returns before things start to equalize again. I think I saw another stat that, 80 to 85% of crypto holders are you know, mostly white men, and the other 15% is another category. So I think starting only early is one big factor, but also, and maybe there isn't a solution that's super clear, but how do you change risk tolerance and like adjust risk, risk balances or 
you know, maybe we mandate <laughs> that all, you know, underrepresented groups, you know, invest 20% of their assets into super risky things. And that's how you equalize over the next hundred years. A super crazy radical proposal, but, it, you know, how do you adjust risk to make it more equitable? You know, if it should be, you know, that's also another question, if it should at all. Yeah, I think it's also a bit about kind of leverage, leveraging leveraging expertise from kind of regions that have had superb success in some way or the other, right? If I look at Berlin, um, yeah. I I could see kind of on, on the past that kind of the, the the startups that I talked to also like five six years ago, they were desperately looking for talent coming from San Francisco or New York because they wanted to kind of bring in that expertise from other regions that have had superb success from specific regions. And I know actually indirectly. Um, a, a founder originally from Germany who moved to kind of also Nigeria and who's building a company um, with a Nigerian together and they kind of building it together and, and kind of he brings in the, the experience from from kind of the German like startup ecosystem and 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 um, and the other founder brings in kind of the local perspective of building a company in Nigeria. And that apparently flourishes quite well because they kind of bring in the different uh, experience points from like the local viewpoint, but also maybe from um, Uh, from kind of a, a, a let's say a successful hub in in, in Germany, kind of building um, successful companies in the past, and of course Germany has profited a lot from the talent coming from San Francisco and, and New York, and kind of bringing in that perspective that Germany didn't have at all. So I think that's something where I think the combination of different people can can help very well. But I, I totally agree with you, right? How can you over time still protect? the local community because at the end coming back to your triple uh, three p's that's what 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 the purpose should be of of kind of building businesses locally globally it doesn't matter but bring it back to community is something that i think is is going to be difficult and and definitely a hard challenge to or hard not to crack but um i see the potential more and more i think yeah yeah i know mike you're going to say something too before uh before max chimed in uh Yeah, the, the only thing I wanted to add to the discussion earlier is just the, the good old adage that once you have money, it's so easy to make more money out of it. And mm -hmm. I'm willing to debate anyone who says it, like, anything against that. It's like, but the, the problem is getting there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, because you said like everyone like needs to invest like 20% in risky assets, but I think the problem is that you need to get the first step somehow through selling your knowledge or something you create or something else because most of the people that i know who are quote-unquote diverse who like have made it and like have made that first step for them it's not an issue anymore right they have the opportunities they can invest and, and maybe like obviously it's a mix of both things but a big problem for me if i see this getting from like zero to one and then like afterwards from one to x is also difficult But zero to one is a, a very big issue that I haven't found a good solution for other than starting early. Yeah. yeah. I think, Max, to your point on um, the blending of different backgrounds and talents, I think that's super important and huge, right? I think the Kareem, which is the startup in the Middle East, Uber for the Middle East, I, I featured them, I think, in chapter five or six. Um, those were started by an expat founder and a Pakistani founder, mm. right? And they merged together and made this great company. Um, the same thing with um, Grab in Southeast Asia. It was made by a founder who was an expat, but she was, you know, from Southeast Asia, but lived, grew up, born and raised in the U.S. and an actual like Southeast Asian native. And they merged together and made a great startup. And Della has, I think, six founders, one of whom is uh, Canadian, two are American, and the other three come from the African continent. Right. And so it, it it's going to be a, it's a global world. People are blending and, and things are blending you know, all over. And so that's going to happen. I think, Mike, to your point on uh on risky asset investment, it also gets me wondering and thinking about, um, there was a study that was done at Harvard where they followed a bunch of people for like 70 years. Uh, I think it was in the 30s all the way up until the 2000s. And, and by the end, they asked like, you know, what made you happy? And they found that happiness increased almost exponentially up until, you know, you made about $130,000 a year. And then every extra dollar didn't actually correspond that much to an increase in happiness. So there's a plateau, there's an amount of money, you know, people debate what it is, but I've seen the number 120, 130, 140,000, that if you make more than that, you're not going to be necessarily happier because you can do all of the things that you need to do. Uh, after that, what makes you happier is really good relationships, feeling fulfilled, doing work that matters to you, and so on and so forth. But I think you can say the same about risky asset investment. You know, if you make, you know, 120, $130,000, $140,000 a year, every dollar that you make past that isn't going to go to, you know, your basic needs, if you kind of know about Maslow's hierarchy and that whole pyramid, 
you can spend the rest on self-actualization and maybe that's angel investing or writing a book or doing some other thing. But uh, once you kind of pass the baseline, that's when you can start kind of investing for the sake of development through capital. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe in the interest of time, since uh, as often happen, but specifically happened today as well, we, we, we digressed a little bit and talked about lots of different topics. But um, I have one question that I definitely wanted to ask when I prepared for this uh, conversation. And uh, then I think Max and I usually have one or two like last questions we usually like to ask uh, as well. But when I, I've been on your website and read a little bit about different things you've done and you've like won lots of awards and like some different things. But the one that jumped into my eye very specifically is the build a bear workshop huggable hero. So <laughs> what, what is that and how did you win it? Uh, that, that was a, a, and can we win it as well is the question, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was an award that I won because of my work with Hugs for Ghana. Build a bear is the big teddy bear company. And so I think they just love the Hugs for Ghana story. Um, they, I think they only ran the award for like three years, right? And I think one of those years I, I applied and got it. Uh, it was nice. They gave me a college scholarship. Uh, I think it was like five thousand dollars or something. Uh, and then they gave me a a, a Build-A-Bear workshop workshop gift card, uh, which I lost um, unfortunately. So Build-A-Bear, if you're listening, I lost the gift card. Please <laughs> send me another <laughs> one so I can go get a teddy bear. <laughs> Let's see if we can connect you with, with someone. But that, that's probably the best award name I've ever heard, so I, I had to ask. I'm a huggable hero. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. Amazing. Um, of course, if Build-A-Bear wants to sponsor the show and we can kind of give teddy bears to every listener, it would also be quite nice, I guess. But um, <laughs> that's a different story. Um, but now, wrapping it up, uh, Michael, just a couple of like final last questions. Like, What's your favorite book that you've read um, in, in, in the past that you want to recommend to the listeners? I just finished reading Fahrenheit 451. I was driving for about six hours this weekend and I listened to it in the car. Uh, so that's a super good fiction book if you're looking for that. And then nonfiction, uh, last week I finished reading a book called Poor Economics, uh, which I think won a prize in economics for being the best economics book in 2020, um, but is all about uh, the economics of, of being poor and how those differ from traditional economic celebration. I think it's written by a couple of Nobel Prize winners. So Poor Economics and Fahrenheit 451 are two good books. And what's what's the best book you would recommend to go into to step into philosophy? Um, I really enjoyed uh, Plato and Socrates and all of that. I would say like Plato's Euthyphro is a really good one. Or there's this, this really short text called the Enchiridion of Epictetus. Um, so Enchiridion nice. is spelled... E-N-C-H-R-I-D-I-O-N. Uh, and Epictetus is E-P-I-C-T-I-T-U-S. You might have spelled it wrong, but if you Google it, Google will fix it. Yeah, I've made the big mistake of like reading his texts at some point, and uh, it's, a, it's a dense read. I would say yeah. for, for <laughs> yeah. a non-philosophy student, I think. But like I really, think really good read. But the Enchiridion is the most accessible. It's it's it. really easy to read. And also you'll finish it and you'll literally change the way that you go about life. Honestly, I think. Awesome. What better way to close it off? That, that wanted, was that was a perfect closing. Thanks, Mike, for having me. And for any of the readers who want to learn more about me, just go to michaelbravel.com i update it regularly with all my projects and things that we talked about here and things that we didn't talk about so uh you know i'm sure my name will be in the show notes just type that.com and you'll find it we just put the url in the show notes make it very easy for people just tap it just web three you guys are so tech savvy <laughs> it's not the matter it's not the metaverse yet but we will go there <laughs> thanks, thanks michael. michael it was a pleasure yeah thanks guys <laughs>